Welcome to Color Me Dead. This is a true crime podcast, and we talk about murder and fuckery most foul in detail while using the darkest of humor. If you don't like words like fuck and cunt, then you probably shouldn't listen. But if you do, then join us while we fuck your feelings. Um, today is Color Me episode 128. Color which, Me episode? What did I say? Color, Color Me, me episode. episode. Hey. I like it. That's the new thing. It's Color Me Dead. Color Me episode. Color Me episode. Color. 128, which I entitled Good Bread, Good Meat, Good God, Let's Eat. Uh, um, This is what me and Nikki refer to as a fuck you episode. Yeah. Because fuck you. This is what you're getting. Yeah. That is, yep. So Lots of shit going on lately. So we put Yay. together as much as we could over the holidays and we actually did more through the holidays than we had planned on mm-hmm. um, because our break came early when my father inconveniently passed away before Thanksgiving. How rude. Thanks, Dad. Um, so our, our series on Becky Watts came to an end and this is your fuck you episode, which is literally a copy pasta. Okay. Yep. We found some stuff on the interwebs. We were going to talk about a few small updates here and there. But this is kind of a, a shitty episode of just, it's like a yard sale. Yeah. It's a yard sale. A yard um, sale of cannibalism. Yeesh. And the reason that we're doing this is because we both have bigger fish in our frying pan. Yeah, we do. So while she is frying her fish and I am highlighting my fish. Highlighting. Highlighting. You got to highlight. So this is what you guys get while we put together some of our bigger pieces. And I have a lot of um, listeners and supporters that are like, hey, when are you going to do this one? When are you going to do this one? And I know that we touch base on this. As soon as I am independently wealthy and I don't have to go to work for, you know, 45, 55 hours a week. And I can hire a nanny. And, oh my God. That would be badass. Yeah, wouldn't it? But. Yeah. This is what I, I just was, this, daydreamed for a minute. Yeah, you did. You oh. kind of, your brain took an intermission. This is what we're doing for right now. And then, and then we get to fry and enjoy bigger fish. Yeah. And just know that like some of the, some of the shit, some of the shit, I'll get to it. Just be patient with me. My shit has, is coming on before football season gets over. That's all the, the hint you get for my fish. And my fish is local. Yep. There's your fish. There is your fish taco. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> your fish taco. I don't know what it is, but that was your fish. That's dude. your fish taco. Yes. Um. So, if you guys go to ageofradio.org, color me dead, you can see all of our episodes. You can shop the bazaar. You can donate to Patreon should you feel groovy about that. Um, check out other shows. There's yeah. lots to choose from. If you have caught up on Color Me Dead and you want more true crime, there's true crime to search for. If you guys want to check out, you know, entertainment on movies, if you guys want to listen to sports podcasts, it's all there. It's mm-hmm. all there. Yeah, 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 shit it is. But if you want to go to Patreon, you can do that. You can. At patreon.com slash Color Me Dead podcast. We have Tiers from $1 to $75, you get different perks for each tier, but at every tier, 
you get our episodes ad-free and maybe just a touch early. Depending on our recording and schedule. <laughs> we, we, we guarantee nothing. And... No. As soon as I get it edited, that's the first place it goes. So that's how early you get it. Sometimes it's the day before. Sometimes it's a couple days before. Sometimes it's right fucking before the other one comes out. You never know. But it doesn't have ads. So there's that. You just, Which, ne- you just never know. Yeah, the ads are good for us, but if you're donating to our Patreon, that's good for us too. So it all works out for us. For us. You for guys, us. <laughs> if you guys want to pick up some merch, you can do that at colormedeadpod.threadless.com. If you want to check us out on social media, at colormedeadpod for Twitter fiends, you can jump on Instagram and check out colormedeadpodcast or Gory underscore Nikki and Color Me Dead Angel. If you want to jump on Facebook, there is a Color Me Dead podcast page and the Color Me Dead podcast group. Feel free to join. No politics is the only rule. And please be kind to one another. Fucking fighting on there. No fighting. Don't argue and don't be, I'm right, you're wrong. Fuck, I don't care. Just don't like it, scroll on. I am am all about a healthy conversation. And I, I even enjoy like... A good discussion Ugh. but if you start bashing each other or attacking another member or Amen. bringing in political shit i will end that with the fucking quickness also please stop reporting posts i don't give a fuck if it hurt your feelings <laughs> please escort yourself to the nearest exit keep your hands and feet inside the ride at all times while you're escorting yourself to the exit but if you continually report posts i will fucking escort you to the door because Quite frankly, this isn't the place for you to be. Yeah, like we literally give you the description of what you're getting into right here. If you don't like our podcast, you're not going to like our group. And if you joined the group without listening to the podcast, that's on you. Uh, today, <laughs> we are doing cannibals. Now, these are not super in-depth pieces, okay? We're basically just throwing out little tidbits. But I did want to share just the tip. Just the tip, just to see how Sometimes it feels. the tip is good. No, no, I want the whole thing. But in this case, we're good with the tip. There's a couple of things that I was going to share with you guys, kind of, you know, because like current episode type shit or current events, okay? Harvey Weinstein has been charged in Los Angeles for rape and sexual assault. Now, if you guys, by the time this episode drops, you will have all seen it. He was charged with one felony count each of forcible rape, forcible oral copulation, sexual penetration by use of force, and sexual battery by restraint. Now, if you're unfamiliar with who Harvey Weinstein is, he's the movie mogul in Hollywood, who has consistently been accused of Mm -hmm. furthering women's um, professional careers in movies and TV with sex. Now, this has been going on for quite some time. And what I have learned in the past is accused is not guilty. And so I have been trying very hard to... Reel in my por- my my porch and fitchfork. <laughs> Get your porch and fork. <laughs> Don't touch it. Don't um, ever touch it. So the torch and pitchfork mentality of when somebody says that this person has done this, this, and this, I try to wait until there is evidence and I try to wait until there is um, material that supports the claim. Now, this makes things very difficult because... 
there are a lot of women, hashtag me too, okay? There are a lot of women who did not get the help, did not get to report, did not get the justice they deserved because nobody believed them. Mm -hmm. And the problem that exists is that a lot of women are assaulted and nobody believes them for whatever reason, okay? Yeah. There's not enough evidence. There's not witnesses. Or they come later. Right. And they're like, why didn't you come before? I don't believe you. Exactly. Why didn't you say it when it happened? Because I just don't believe you. And there's a lot of reasons why women don't come forward. Or Uh or men. Like, I don't want to exclude them because there are a lot of people, um, men, that are thrown into that. And they get told things like, oh, did that little girl hurt you? How How did she hurt you? How did she molest you? It's very frustrating. There are a lot of people that exploited... The Me Too as well. I know people personally that told stories that were untrue using that hashtag. Um, There are women that accused even this piece of shit, Weinstein, that it later came out. They they never had any kind of exclusive contact that, you know what I mean? And they would, they'd come back later and been like, okay, you know, we were just jumping on the fucking, like, can we get behind the whole Janice the first supermodel Dickinson. Mm-hmm. She accused and accused and accused, I mean, Weinstein, Cosby. Now, I'm not saying that she did not have certain situations that she was in with these people, but she full-blown admitted. I lied. That she embellished and or lied. So please don't do that. Don't no. Don't lie about sexual assault, abuse, rape. Like, it really fucks up life for mm-hmm. actual people who have suffered at the hands of others. Um... So this has been going on since like 2013 is when people have, women have started coming forward and being like, yo, this monster of a person either made me do this or had like did this to me and said that if I told or that if I didn't comply with whatever fucking sorted request he had, that their fucking reputation would be ruined and their career would be fucking ended, Right. So, prosecutors have started charging him in two separate two separate incidences, um, which I listed at the front, which was forced oral copulation, penetration by force, sexual battery with restraint, forcible rape. So, these are all things that are now coming to a head, which is really unfortunate because this piece of shit is old. Like, he's walking around with the assistance of a walker. Um, I really wish that this had come full head years ago. At this point, he's like, well, got away with it for most of my life. What are you going to do now? Right. Um, But I mean, this this guy is now like he has bullied women into their hotel rooms. He has fondled women. He has raped women. And now and now he's going to get his comeuppance. So I just wanted to put that out there. There's an entire article that I can share with you guys from BuzzFeed, which I don't necessarily share information from BuzzFeed because it's BuzzFeed. But I was really excited about this because his bail recommendation was $5 million. And if all of the con- if he is convicted of all of these charges, he faces up to 28 years in state prison. Now, 28 years for all of these charges is nothing. In the grand scheme of things, but he'll die in prison. Yeah, he won't even make it eight. So, there is that. Um, Also, I wanted to touch bases with you. I had one of our listeners 
um, touch base with us. Uh, do, do, do. So, <clears throat> my name is Haley, and I recently found your podcast. I'm obsessed with you and Nikki and the work that you guys do. Shanksh. Uh, I was listening to episode 48.5 and the episodes you were telling about Chuck E. Cheese when I heard a familiar name. <laughs> mm-hmm. You ready? Yes. Stephen Sherwood was one of the names that you mentioned. The minute I heard you say this, chills went down my spine. He is my ex-father-in-law. Oh my God. I started, dude, you know that whole six degrees of separation thing? It's fucking real. I just got, I have full body chills yeah. at this moment. So I started dating his youngest son when I was 15. I dated him until I was 20. I wasn't sure if you kept up with his story, but I did hear you say that you didn't keep up with the story and you would want, but, and I wanted you to know he got 240 years in prison for raping slash molesting 11 children of his family members and of his ex-wife and other girls in the neighborhood. Oh my God. So here is the article that she forwarded to me. With his photo. Turder. I remember that face. Yes. So, a Fairfield man who befriended and then sexually assaulted 11 young girls ranging in age from 5 to 15 was sentenced to 239 years in prison. Ding, ding, ding. So, this article actually came out four years ago. I want to say it was roughly 2015, 16. Mm -hmm. Okay. He had befriended neighbors and friends with young children and then would turn around and lure them places that he could rape and molest them. Um, Mostly, this is like, fuck this guy. For years, he would take these young girls from these families, mostly Spanish-speaking families, to the libraries or park or out to pizza or to amusement parks. Um, And he would kind of ply them with goodies and toys and trinkets before assaulting and raping so it came like it started with a single victim being discovered in 2014 um sure okay so it says that it was with by happenstance at a vacant home where he was doing some construction that led the police to an investigation that would later turn up 11 victims police found children toys children's toys in his bedroom along with a lot of young girl clothing and underwear they also found pornographic pictures and videos of sherwood sexually assaulting some of his victims jesus fuck yep i don't like it so just so you know this piece of shit will be spending the rest of his life in a prison cell and a lot of people's lives in a prison cell mm-hmm. ew what a fucking shit bag so there's there's some information there that i thought was pretty important what was for her us. name Haley? yeah Haley. thank you Haley. Haley on instagram thank you Haley on instagram yeesh um there's also one that i had intended to cover a little while ago that was sent in by our twitter buddy jer Mm-hmm. Um, this was something that was actually, it took place in Ogden. And so it was a local story to Utah. Yeah. Um, anyway, it was it, the information available on this particular story is small. Um, Just a little. It's small. Um, I'm not giving up on it because the, the woman in this story has actually been released. Um, her name is Shelly Flamel. She was... Um, Related to Nicholas. N- maybe. 
From Harry Potter. (laughs) This woman had publicly pled for the return of her missing daughter only to confess to her murder five days later. So, Damn. Mm-hmm. so in 1994, um, she had actually been ordered to serve a five to life for the slaying of her three-year-old daughter, Courtney Jo. Um, essentially, what had happened in this case was that she pled guilty to a to murder, a first degree felony in that in March of that year. Um, Weber County Attorney Office said that it would be recommended she serve no more than six years with credit for the 16 months that she was actually in jail. Um, the autopsy for her child showed that the victim was, it was homicide. Like, she didn't pass of SIDS. It wasn't, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but they couldn't deter- determine the cause of death. And the defense came forward and said that, you know, Shelly Flamel was a drug addict. She was full of methamphetamine. She had been on a binge. She took her daughter to bed with her, which is hard to believe because if you're on a methamphetamine, if you're on a meth binge, you're not sleeping. You ain't sleeping. Um, But she said that she took her child to bed with her and the baby was dead the next morning. Shelly said that she does not know what happened and we believe her. She accepts responsibility for her daughter's death and she expects to um, serve her prison time. So, the thing that about this case is that her daughter supposedly went missing. Mm-hmm. She makes this public cry for, please help me find my daughter. Oh, wait. She's been here dead the whole time. And the thing that took place is that they, she had, supposedly she took the daughter and placed her in like a cemetery or a park. Jesus fucking Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's where she was found later. I don't like it. Mm-hmm. So there's more information. I am going to dig into this a little bit deeper. I was yeah. going to try and find this woman and see if she would do an interview. I don't know if that's going to happen. Hello, Miss but, Meth Lady. Will you do an interview with us? Excuse me, Methany. Will you talk to me? Um, but during all of this, court records had also been produced to show that Flamel had a prior history of child abuse. In 1989, her son Tyler was taken away from her by the state by protective workers who, after he had been hospitalized with a broken arm, broken leg, and a, and skull fractures in eight places. So to me, it sounds like this woman has a pretty serious history of... Not being a good mom. Not being a good mother. Mm-hmm. Not being a good mother, not even a little. But... um she had basically dumped the body like she wrapped her daughter's body in a blanket and then let oh it was a cemetery she left the baby's corpse under a bush in ogden city cemetery how old did you say the baby was she was three. Oh god so she said in a rage the day before 22 year old flamel hit the girl numerous times with a fatal blow to the neck fuck i didn't mean to hit her i meant to hit her but i didn't mean to kill her is what she said So for three days, they had volunteers scouring all of Ogden, and she's on TV and on radio begging for the safe return of her daughter, knowing the whole time that she fucking karate chopped her baby in the fucking neck with probably an implement that ended her life. And then they, you know, three days later, they find her body, and obviously the suspicion turns to Shelley Flamel. Um, And then she later admitted to the murder of her daughter. And she wanted to go through with the initial... Um, 
you know, the initial claim was, well, he went to bed with her and I woke up and she died. So I just wrapped her up in her favorite blank and uh, put her in a whoopee. Went and put her at the cemetery. And put her at the cemetery where she was going to end up anyway. She's going to save money, save time and money. For fuck's sake. Well, she has been released, okay? So, um... How the fuck? She won parole 20... And this this article was in 2015. It had been 21 years. She wins parole 21 years after killing her daughter and dumping her in the cemetery. God damn. So, if you look at this, she, like, goes on to say... And this was all in 1994. But she said that Courtney was crying and crying. She couldn't get her to stop. And that, um... The, the boyfriend at the time had testified against Shelly, saying that she took her daughter into a room to punish her because she wouldn't stop screaming. And Flamel said that she lost her temper, took her into a room to punish her, and she didn't come out. Wow. Yeah. So I am not done with this article. Of course, it's... The thing is, with that, art, with that specific one, is that it's pretty cut and dry. Um, but I would like to talk to that woman. Uh, yeah. I don't know if she'll talk to me, but... We can try it. But I certainly can try. Moving on. So would you like to start? I would love to start. You should. I will talk about the fat bastard of doom. Fat bastard. The fat bastard. This article... Article. ...is from All That Is Interest... Oh, shit. I can't even say it. All That Is Interesting. Dot All That's Interesting. Dot com. So, like I said, these are pretty much copy pasta. Yeah, like, so don't don't judge us. Yeah, don't these turn are, us in. These we are, said so. Yeah, we we literally <laughs> are giving you articles. These are not all in our words. It's a literal article. Article. Okay, and it's about Nathan Barjona, who was accused of murdering a child. Soon, his neighbors remembered the strange meat he had given them years before. At more than three hundred pounds. Nathaniel Barjona cut an intimidating figure in the small Montana town of Great Falls, but few in Great Falls knew just how frightened they truly should have been. Barjona had moved to Great Falls from Massachusetts, where he had just finished a long sentence for sexual assault and attempted murder of a young boy. And in this sleepy town at the edge of the Rockies, he would strike again, but now he had a taste for human flesh. Um, in his early lives and crimes, Nathaniel Barjona was born David Paul Brown in Worcester, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, in 1957, and there were early signs that he wasn't a normal child. In 1964, he received a Ouija board for his seventh <coughs> birthday. Yay! Using the... <laughs> My kids all want Ouija boards. Um, using the promise... Of trying the board out, he lured five-year-old a five-year-old neighbor into his basement. There, he tried to strangle her. Luckily, the girl's screams alerted his Barjona's mother, who ran downstairs and forced him to let her go. His mother likely assumed that the boy didn't know what he was doing and nothing came of the incident. But in 1970, he decided to try again. Promising another neighbor, a six-year-old boy, that they could go sledding, Barjona lured the child to a secluded area and he sexually assaulted him there. This became a pattern for Nathaniel Barjona, but as he grew older, he developed a more sophisticated technique to gain access to his victims. 
1975, Bar Jonah approached an eight-year-old boy on his way to school. Claiming to, believe, to be a police officer, Bar Jonah lured the boy into his car where he began to sexually assault and strangle him. Luckily for the boy, a neighbor looking out their window saw the boy being abducted and called the police. Bar Jonah was arrested but only sentenced to one year's probation. The light sentence emboldened Barjona, and three years later, he abducted two other boys from a movie theater claiming to be a police officer and then telling them they were under arrest. He handcuffed the boys before taking them to a, seclu- to a secluded area and molesting them. Trying to silence a potential witness, Barjona began strangling one of the children. When he was convinced that the boy was dead, he put the other victim in his trunk and drove away. Like you do. Like you do. Luckily, the boy had actually... Did he actually? <laughs> he actually survived the attack and ran to get help. Barjona was soon found by the police with other victims... The, the other victims still in his trunk. Mm-hmm. This time, Barjona was charged with attempted murder and sentenced to 18 to 20 years in prison. While in prison, Barjona began meeting with a psychiatrist. After hearing him describe his fantasies, which revolved around murdering, dissecting, and eventually eating children, the psychiatrist recommended that he be moved to a mental hospital. You don't say. No, I I don't know where they got that. Why would you? But in 1991, a judge concurred with the psychiatric evaluations that had somehow found him not to be a dangerous threat. What? Mm-hmm. Inexplicably, the judge agreed to release Bar Jonah on probation if he moved to Montana to live with his mother. Though it was okay, have, have have we not uh, learned yeah. that sometimes these people should have no contact with their mothers? Uh, yo, mama was probably the problem in the beginning, so maybe that's a bad idea. I'm just saying. My unofficial armchair diagnosis is no mom. No, no mom. <laughs> um. It was recommended, though, that he seek psychiatric help. Oh, all right. I guess. I suppose. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Just days after being released, Barjona spotted a seven-year-old boy sitting in a parked car. He forced his way into the car and tried to smother the boy by sitting on top of him. Okay, does this, like, can you guys stop putting fucking murderers back onto the street, please? Because that would be awesome. Okay, thanks. Bye. Especially ones that are going to use their 300 pounds to, like, smother. Like, motherfucker, you think you can get away from me? I'll smother your ass. I just need you guys to know that 170 pounds is hard to get out from underneath, okay? Mm -hmm. Double that, you ain't getting out. I know this from personal experience when Spencer gives me the human blanket. Yep. I've literally had to, like, he's playing, but I've literally had to, like, reach back and pinch him and be like, motherfucker, you're killing me. Like, I know that we roughhouse kind of... You know, a, a, at a higher level. But, like, he has laid on me and been like, I'm a human blanket. And I'm like, no, you're crushing the fucking soul what out of my body. What you're doing is killing me. Yes. If I laid on my eight-year-old daughter, we're pretty close to these, you know, weights here, I would kill her. It would be over. She wouldn't be able to move. She wouldn't be able to do shit. But luckily, Barjona was stopped by the boy's mother and quickly arrested. Um, when he was in Great Falls... We'll talk about that. Somehow, after the arrest, no one from the Massachusetts court followed up with the probation officers in Montana, to which Barjona had quickly fled. 
This allowed Barjona to melt. I don't melt. think he quickly did anything. No, I'm I'm really close to that weight. I don't quickly do shit. <laughs> Just so you know. This allowed Barjona to melt in into the local community. By now, he had changed his name from David Brown to Nathaniel Benjamin Levi Barjona. Because why not? Claiming that he wanted to know what it felt like to live with the uh, persecution that Jewish people experienced. I don't think it's the same. He alternatively claimed that he had always been Jewish and the actual truth may have never been known for sure. But despite the name change, he had changed a little else about himself. In 1996, 10-year-old Zachary Ramsey disappeared on his way to school. His parents filed a missing persons report, but the local police department wasn't used to this sort of crime. With few leads, the case went cold. Meanwhile, Nathaniel Barjona was living in a nearby apartment complex. There, he'd secretly been luring young boys from the area inside his apartment before sexually assaulting them. He'd even installed a pulley from the ceiling where he hung at least one of them by the neck. What the fuck, bud? Mm-hmm. Yet these crimes went undiscovered for years. One woman grew suspicious after her child suddenly became withdrawn and angry after spending time with Barjona, but um, but no one thought that someone in Great Falls could be molesting children. Ew. Nobody here could be doing that. What the fuck, guys? Hello? And no one suspected that Barjona was a murderer. Yet these crimes went undiscovered for years. One woman grew suspicious after her child suddenly became withdrawn and angry after spending time with Barjona, but no one thought that someone in Great Falls could be molesting children. But other neighbors did notice that the food Barjona made for them was full of strange meat that they couldn't identify. When asked, Barjona claimed that it had come from a deer he shot, though no one knew that he ever went hunting. In 1999... (laughs) Don't you have to be kind of light on your feet and quiet to hunt? Well, yeah, a little. Or you at least have to go outside. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. In 1999, he was arrested outside a local elementary school carrying a fake gun and dressed as a police officer. What is his trip? Uh, At first, the charge was simply impersonating a police officer. But when the police searched Barjona's home, they made a shocking discovery. Inside Nathaniel Barjona's home, investigators discovered thousands of photos of children cut from magazines in a bizarre journal written in code. Even more importantly for the investigation, they also found a piece of human bone. Mm-hmm. 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 The journal was sent into the FBI to be decoded while the police began looking into the possibility that Barjona had murdered Ramsey. Meanwhile, others, other neighbors came forward with allegations that Barjona had been molesting their children and Barjona was quickly charged with kidnapping and sexual assault. By the time the trial began, the FBI had decoded Barjona's journal. Inside, he described his obsession with torturing and murdering children. There was also a list of 22 names. Eight of them were known to be Nathaniel Barjona's earlier victims. Many of the rest were local children. The others were never identified. Even more disturbingly... Get out your puke bucket here. Mm -hmm. Right now. Right now. Right now. If you're eating, stop. The diary detailed his plans to cook and eat the children. Barbecued kid. Sex a la carte. My little kid dessert. 
Little Boy Stew, Little Boy Pot Pies, and lunches served on the on the patio with Roasted Child were all entries in Bar Jonah's Twisted Writings. <laughs> Taken with the meat grinder that police found in Bar Jonah's home, the writings raised dark suspicion. You don't fucking say. Okay. Thinking of the strange meals Barjona had fed them, his neighbors began to wonder if Barjona had murdered Ramsey and fed them his flesh. I, I picture this as being like that part in Ace Ventura when he finds out Einhorn is a man. <laughs> and he's like taking a shower and using the toilet plunger on their mouth. Oh, God. No, 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 no. That's pretty much, I think, what my reaction would be if I knew that I had consumed a child. A child. But Barjona denied that he'd killed Ramsey at all. And there was never enough evidence to prove these allegations of cannibalism one way or another, though there's more than enough circumstantial evidence to make one wonder. That said, there wasn't even enough evidence to substantiate the claim that Barjona had murdered Ramsey in the first place, and after the boy's mother claimed that she didn't think he did, the charges were dropped. Mm-hmm. Instead, Barjona was sentenced to 130 years in prison for the molestation charges. Now, wait, wait. So That's he got 130 lot. years for molestation, but Weinstein's getting 28 years for rape, rape and sodomy and... All kinds of other shit, but yeah. yeah. Fuck. Others in town wanted to take their own form of justice, which yeah, you don't like, blame them like, like you, you do. fucking do. <laughs> One resident told the press that if Barjona were released, his life wouldn't be worth a plug nickel around here. You think? But no one would ever get the chance to kill Nathaniel Barjona. He was found dead in his cell in 2008, morbidly obese. He died from cardiovascular disease. To this day, no one is sure how many people Nathaniel Barjona killed. He is such, he is a possible suspect in several murders in Massachusetts, Wyoming, and Montana, but none have ever been conclusively solved. The next one that we're going to touch bases on is a little bit of a dreamer. Mm-hmm. And this piece is about Issei Sagawa. He murdered a friend and ate her remains, yet he is free to walk around the streets and his desires haven't changed. So when Issei Sagawa murdered, dismembered, and devoured Rene Hartvelt, Hartvelt in 1981, he was fulfilling a 32-year-old dream. 32. 32 mm-hmm. years in the making. That's gross. He had a lifetime, well, what is described as a lifetime of cannibalistic thoughts. In first grade, he noticed a classmate's thighs and thought, hmm, that looks delicious. That's what I always think. Not. That's good eating. Right there. Them thighs, them's good eating. I'm going to think about it if anybody ever tells me they want to, like, if they know, ever are like, like mm, look at them thighs. You're going to have to side-eye the fuck out of that person. And be like, in what way do you want to bite them? <laughs> in what way are they delicious? Is this a sexual fun play thing where they stay on me? Where there's no chunks out? Is this, or... gen- is this gentle yet painful bites? Or the kind that you chew and then consume? Mm-hmm. Are you going to shit it out later or no? <laughs> is this going to make a turd? Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm not in for that. I'm option two, not available. No. <laughs> <laughs> There's an unexpected item in the bagging area. Stop what Please you're doing. Please remove it. <laughs> Take it out. <laughs> no more. 
He was always really short with skinny legs that, finger quotes, look like pencils. And he blames the media's representation of Western women, Western women. Hey, if you like women, all them womangs of Western women, the way that they looked like Grace Kelly for sparking his cannibalistic fantasies, equating it with what most people would call sexual desire. See, where other people dreamed of bedding beautiful women, Sagawa dreamed of eating them. He, he maintains, however, that he never thought of killing them, only gnawing on their flesh. Well. Well, when you put it like that. I wasn't going to kill them. I just wanted to shoo on them a little. Just a little bit. <laughs> I wasn't going to eat it. I was only going to taste it. <laughs> like Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> and just wanted to taste it. In 1981, after repressing these sordid little fantasies for 32 years, they finally got the best of him. Mm -hmm. Issei moved to Paris to study literature at Sorbonne, a public research university. Once he was there, he said that his cannibalistic urges took over. He said, almost every night I would bring a prostitute home and then I would try to shoot them from behind. Now that also could be a... (laughs) How do you just try? I I think that... Well... He said it became less about wanting to eat them, and really, it was more about the obsession with the idea that I could simply carry out this ritual of killing a girl no matter what. Okay. Well, eventually, he found the perfect victim. Rene Hartevelt was a Dutch student who was studying with Sagawa at the so- at Sorbonne. Over time, Issei had struck up a friendship with her, occasionally inviting her, her over to his home for dinner. At some point, he had obviously gained her trust. He had, t- he had attempted to kill her once unsuccessfully before actually murdering her. So my question is, how clever was this girl? Clearly not that clever if she went back after he tried to murder her. Either she didn't notice or she was like, was that real? Or did I? do I need to come back for part two? Or he pays so well that um, I don't really give a fuck. Well, she wasn't a prostitute. Oh, yeah, she She was a student. She was, wasn't she? I got stuck on the prostitute thing. Well, or maybe he he pays her well, too. I don't know. Don't know. But he attempted to kill her once. Didn't didn't get it there. Um, The first time the gun misfired while her back was turned. You should probably get better weapons. The gun misfired. If your gun's misfiring, you could potentially fuck yourself up, and Big that's time. no fun. Big time. Not that it matters. You probably should have fucked yourself up. Um, <laughs> yeah. Though most would take this as a sign to give up, this only per- pushed Issei further down his little rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. He said that it made him even more hysterical, and I simply knew I just had to kill her. I thought about calling an ambulance, and this is after he actually pulled a gun, fired, and he did it the very next night. So I guess if at first you don't succeed... Try, try again. The next night. The next night. He thought about calling an ambulance, but his remorse turned to elation. He was like, I shoot her, she dies, and he's like, oh shit. Oh fuck. And then he was like, <laughs> yay me, I yeah. did it. Success. Victory, victory. Woohoo. But then he thought, hang on, don't be stupid. You've been thinking about this for 32 years and now it's actually happening. So immediately after killing her, he raped her corpse and then cut her open. Like you do. What else would you do? Why wouldn't you? The first thing I did was cut into her buttocks. No matter how deep I cut, all I saw was the fat beneath the skin. It looked like corn. 
<laughs> he would have a heyday with my ass. <laughs> I kind of want to see the inside of your ass now. I do too. I, what, what does it look like? Shall we cadat? Let's cadat. I always wondered, like, because you see fat, like, on um, the TV shows, like, botched or, like, the yeah. surgery shows, and they cut it open and they peel it back, and to me, it looks like the underneath of a tentacle of, like, yeah. an octopus. That's what I think it looks like, too. Not, not so much corn. Not so much Let's corn. Let's find out. But he said, it took a while to actually reach the red meat. The moment I saw the meat, I tore a chunk off with my fingers and threw it into my uh. mouth. It was, a, it was a truly historical moment for me. Yes, it was. Ultimately, he said his only regret was that he hadn't eaten her while she was alive. You know, that happened to me once. <laughs> God. <laughs> he said, what I truly wished was to eat the flesh of the living. Nobody believes me, but my ultimate intention was to eat her, not necessarily kill her. That's why you were trying to kill her. Get your shit straight, sir. Yeah. Issei Sagawa says the reasons behind his cannibalistic tendencies cannot be explained or conceptualized. No shit. Well, he said it's simply a fetish. For example, if a normal man fancied a girl, he had he would have felt naturally a desire to see her as often as possible, to be close to her, to smell her, to kiss her, right? To me, eating is just an extension of that. He said, frankly, I can't fathom why everyone doesn't feel this urge to eat and consume other people. So some people... Want to get jacked off with a foot. He wants to eat people while they're still alive. And there's no difference. It's no, just they're really, a fetish. It's just a fetish. Two days after ki- killing Hartevelt, Sagawa disposed of what remained of her body. He had eaten or frozen most of her pelvic region. Uh, so he put her legs, torso, and head in two suitcases and called a cab. The taxi dropped him off at the... The Bois de... What appears to be baloney. <laughs> Boulogne. Bois de Boulogne. <laughs> Bois de Boulogne. Yes. Park, which was secluded and had a little lake next to it. He planned to put the suitcases, um, he wanted to take the suitcases and like throw them in the lake and go unnoticed. Though several people obviously did notice suitcases that, you know, had been dripping with blood and they called the French police. He didn't even like try to put them in a trash bag or anything Mm -mm. or let it bleed out first or... Nope. So when the police found him and questioned him, his response was just like, I killed her so I could eat her. Dang it. You caught me. Bummer. So Esau awaited trial for over two years in a French prison. When it was finally his time to be tried, the French judge, Jean-Louis Brugier, declared him legally insane and unfit to stand for trial, Uh dropping the charges... All of the charges. All them charges. Um, and ordering him to be held indefinitely in a mental institution. They deported him back to Japan where he would spend the rest of his days in that hospital. Supposedly. But he didn't. Mm-mm. Because the charges in France had been dropped, the court documents were sealed. They couldn't be released to Japanese authorities. Therefore, the Japanese had no case, to, no case against Esau and had no choice but to turn him loose. All right. And set him free. In 1986, he checks himself out of the institution and has been a free man ever since. Today, Isa Sagawa walks the streets of Tokyo where he lives, free to do as he pleases. A terrifying thought when one hears that, you know, the threat of life in prison didn't kill or quell the urge. 
Well, of course it didn't. He got out because they were like, you're fucking crazy. You're going to go here. And then they're like, well, well, charges aren't here. So whatever. Bye. Get out. He said the desire to eat people becomes so intense around June when women start wearing less and showing more skin. Just today, I saw a girl with a really nice derriere on my way to the train station. When I see things like that, I think about wanting to eat somebody again before I die. Okay. What I'm saying is I can't bear the thought of leaving this life without tasting that derriere that I saw this morning or her thighs. I want to eat them again while I'm alive so that I can at least be satisfied when I die. He's even planned out how he will do it. I think either sukiyaki or shabu shabu, which is lightly boiled, thin slices, is the best way to go in order to really savor the natural flavors of the meat. I agree. In the meantime, however, Sagawa has refrained from his cannibalism. Instead, he has devoted his time to writing books and most recently publishing his 20th work title. Are you ready for the title? Yeah. Extremely Intimate Fantasies of Beautiful Girls. Okay. The book is filled with pictures drawn by himself as well as famous artists. He said, I hope people who will read this will stop thinking of me as a monster. Which is highly fucking unlikely. No. No, thank you. I will not. I won't. I I won't (laughs) do it. And you can't make me. Oh my god. Well, so there's that. I'm safe in the winter mints when or in the summer mints <laughs> when I I like to stay modest. I don't like to show skin. Holy shit. Mostly cuz it's really fat so I like to keep it secluded, but I'm good. I just think it's funny that he was able to give an interview. There's legitimate sources directly linked about him wanting to eat people, and they're just like, oh, you know Issei. No big deal. I saw her derriere, and I just wanted to eat it. Bite it like an mm-hmm. apple. Mm-hmm. Don't bite that ass <laughs> like an apple. So there's that. Yeah, there is. Well, you know. That moves us on. It does. To how money can't buy anything but happiness. It can buy anything but happiness. Yeah, it can. Yeah. How about money can buy anything but happiness? All right? Anything. This is, these are all from the same website. Yeah, you guys can go and check them out. All that's interesting.com. If you'd like. If you'd like it. In the 1880s, an heir to the vast Jameson Irish whiskey fortune bought a 10-year-old girl just so he could draw her being eaten by cannibals. Hot. I don't like it. Mm-hmm. James S. Jameson was the great-great-grandson of John Jameson, the founder of the famed Irish Whiskey Company. And, as such, was the heir to the family fortune. Like many rich heirs of the era, Jameson considered himself something of an adventurer and would tag along on the expeditions of more accomplished explorers. Yuck. Meaning I'm... he paid for the privilege to go explore with a team that knew what the fuck they were doing, could protect him, and provided him all of the comforts he required to explore. Mm. I'm glad I never drink. I don't drink Jameson, so I... Now you don't feel bad? That's all I, I really, really don't. Ugh, I really no. don't want to ever drink it. It's a simple fetish, he said. For example... I love how these are all simple fetishes. Simple. It's simple. No, a simple fetish is like... A foot fetish. Dressing up as a pony with a butt plug with a tail. That's pretty simple. Or, you know, safe words so that you can burn each other with fucking tasers. I don't know. But, like, if people are dying and being consumed, that's not so simple. 
Yeah, I I, anyway, I, sec- I, I second that. That's personally me. It's your birthday. Um. Well, it wasn't, but sorry, sorry about that. Okay. In 1888, he joined the Emin Pasha Relief Expedition led by renowned explorer Henry Morton Stanley across Central Africa. The journey was ostensibly to bring supplies to Emin Pasha, the leader of an Ottoman province in Sudan that was cut off by a revolt. In reality, the expedition had a second purpose, to annex more land for the Belgian Free State Colony on the Cong- in the Congo. It was on this expedition that James Jameson would commit his unspeakable crime. Verifying accounts exist of the incident from Jameson's diary, his wife, and a translator on the trip. But what they all agree on is that by June of 1888, Jameson was in command of the rear column of the expedition at Ribakabia. Rib- I can say it in my brain, but my mouth isn't wanting to say it right. So, Ribakaba, a trading post deep in the Congo known for its cannibal population. They also say that Jameson uh, was dealing directly with Tipu Tip, a slave trader and a local fixer. According to Asand Ferran, the Sudanese translator on the trip, Jameson expressed interest in seeing cannibalism firsthand. Ferran would later tell Stanley when he returned to check up on the rear column of his account of the events and would later recount them in an affidavit that was published by the New York Times. He said that Tipu then talked to the chiefs of the village and produced a 10-year-old slave girl who Jameson paid six handkerchiefs for. Handkerchiefs. That's what I said. Handkerchiefs. He used handkerchiefs. Oh, I was it like, was, I said it right. No, that was, that was the payment. Yeah. It wasn't Here's gold. It wasn't spices. It was handkerchiefs. Yeah. Six, <clears throat> six of them. Six of them. Six of them. What can I get for six of them? <laughs> what about seven? Six. I got seven. I'd rather only spend six. God. According to a translator, the chiefs then said their villager said to their villagers, quote, this is a present from a white man who wishes to see her eaten. The girl was tied to a tree, said Farron. The natives sharpened their knives the while. One of them then stabbed her twice in the belly. In Jameson's own diary, he then wrote, three men then ran forward and began to cut up the body of the little girl. Finally, her head was cut off and not a particle remained, each man taking his piece ugh, away uh-huh. down the river to wash it. Yep. Both of them also agree on another count. The girl never screamed throughout the whole ordeal. So here's my, here's my quandary. Here's my question. Is, did they drug her or was she that gangster? I, uh, I'm hoping they drugged her. I hope so. So that she didn't feel anything. Mm-hmm. Mm. Damn. Yeah, dude. The most extraordinary thing was that the girl never uttered a sound nor struggled until she fell, wrote Jameson. Jameson, in the meantime, made rough sketches of the horrible scenes recounted um, Farad in his later testimony. Jameson afterward went to his tent where he finished his sketches in watercolors. In his own diary, Jameson oddly doesn't even fully deny making these drawings, writing, When I went home, I tried to make some small sketches of the scene while still fresh in my memory. In this account in his diary and his wife's later account on the incident, the two attempted to play it off as though Jameson went along with the proceedings because he believed it to be a joke. 
and could not imagine that the villagers would actually kill and eat the child. However, this account fails to explain why Jameson would pay exactly six handkerchiefs, likely an amount he would have to procure for something he didn't believe would happen. It also fails to explain why he even attempted to sketch the horrifying event after the murder. Likely the account of his crime is true, but Jameson, or James Jameson never faced justice. He died shortly after the accusations of his misconduct made their way to Stanley in 1888 from a fever he had contracted. Jameson's family, with help of the Belgian government, were able to hush up many of the atrocities. This mission became the last of its kind. Non-scientific civilian expeditions to Africa were suspended after this time, though military and governmental ones would continue, all because of the crimes of a whiskey heir and their brave interpreter who told the world what he did. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. So, uh, I know that we have already covered Sonny Bean, have we not? Mm-hmm. Because he is, he is Scottish folklore. And he is actually one that I had intended to cover again, but you brought it to my attention that we had already covered it, and you've already talked about it, and so we're not going to. No. But we are going to cover one that is a little bit fun for us. (laughs) So fun. So fun. But there's actually a couple of books I've thought about getting and covering this a little deeper, but when wagons go west too late in the season... They don't make it. You don't make it. You get hungry. And then you eat people. The Donner Party. Woohoo! You guys know this one because the term has long become synonymous with one of America's most infamous cases of cannibalism. And one of the best cases of cannibalism recorded in history. While most everybody has a certain, um, you know, a certain knowledge of this harrowing tale of failed Western migration, you at least know the name, right? Mm-hmm. The details of the expedition are a little less known. The premise is quite simple. Around 90 immigrants banded together to leave Springfield, Illinois in the spring of 1846 to take an untested and supposedly shorter route to California. Led by brothers Jacob and George, the results of this endeavor were far less simple and tested the resilience and the moral standing of everybody involved. According to history, this is an actual book that you can get and it's a website as well. Through a combination of travel delays, insurmountable terrain, the group got stuck in the Sierra Nevada mountains and it was quickly trapped by heavy snowfall. Hey, by the by, just in case other people aren't aware of this, it fucking snows in California. Up high in the mountain tips. Lake Arrowhead, Sierra Nevadas, it snows and it's really nasty. Mm -hmm. Just so you know, it it snows. In the next few months, half of the party died. The surviving half, many of which ate the other, reached California the next year. The gruesome realities of this expedition rapidly spread across the country. Before the story could die down or be forgotten entirely, it became world famous, warning about the perils of man's traversal of the wild and how quickly the fabric of supposed order can give away to the depths of lawlessness and inhumanity. The Donner Party departed from Springfield in April of 1846. Author Michael Wallace wrote Best Land Under Heaven, The Donner Party in the Age of in the Age of Manifest Des- Manifest Destiny. 
It had nary been a year since the term manifest destiny was coined by John O'Sullivan of the New York Post. Anglo-Americans sincerely believed that they were God's chosen people and that it was their God-given right to expand across the con- continent. Fucking, you're pretty self-standard bunch of fucks, aren't you? <laughs> Indigenous peoples be damned. Wow. According to National Geographic, President James Polk even concocted a baseless war against Mexico in order to conduct the land grab. The storyline was, there are no people out there anyway, so let's make it our land. Of course, there were lots of people out of there. Lots of people, like the Mexicans. And, you know, the tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Native Americans. So, what we did was gobble up nations. While this general sense of superiority at the time was misguided, one aspects of this continent-wide expansion was perfectly clear. Immigrants traveling the California Trail absolutely needed to head west at the right time in the season in order to sur- in order to survive. This is no shit. According to history, the opportune moment was in late spring so that the grass was available for their pack animals um, so there was enough time to cross the challenging mountain passes before winter, av- winter arrived. This was the first, arguably, biggest failure of the Donner Party, okay? Uh They left Independence, Missouri on May 12th, when the right time to do so was mid to late April. So they were several weeks behind. Just a little bit. Yes, you bit. They were the last major pioneer train of the year. And with such substantial delay, any miscalculation on their route could have dire consequences. Uh Um. There was one immigrant that wrote in her diary that says, I am beginning to feel alarmed at the tardiness of our moments and fearful that the winter will find us in the snowy mountains of California. Sister, you weren't fucking wrong. I'd have been like, fuck you. I'm not going. You know, if if that's how I had to. Okay, so <clears throat> I have never had to travel by a wagon. I have, however, moved cows by horseback uh-huh. for several days at a time. Uh-huh. And I happen to know that travel on a horse, no matter how upbeat your horses takes a long long time (laughs) unless you're gonna run that fucking horse literally to death Mm -hmm. and i'm not it's this yeah dude like y'all fucked up slow and boring and fuck and take me half a day to ride a horse to your goddamn house it should never take you half a day to ride a horse from your house to mine I don't like horses, so... Okay, that's fair enough. It'd probably take me at least three quarters of that time to get on the sun, bitch. <laughs> well, unfortunately, these immigrants could not have been more warranted in their concerns. The traditional route to California had the pioneers travel north through Idaho once arriving in Wyoming, and then they would do this little swoop south, move through Nevada. Unfortunately, the Donner Party, a dishonest unscrupulous guidebook author by the name of Lansford Hastings offered a more direct and supposedly faster path in 1846. The Hastings cutoff proposed that cutting through the Wasatch Mountains, that's us, that's Utah. Yeah. And then um, depositing themselves across the Salt Lake Desert was a faster route. Let me tell you something about the Wasatch Mountains. They go straight up. And straight Straight fucking fucking down. down. Okay. So in the great words of Dr. Evil, Scotty, don't. (laughs) It's not fucking safe. No. We don't even travel those motherfuckers with paved roads and four-wheel drive vehicles. Fuck no. Because they are that fucking sketchy at times. Okay. Just so you know. Um. (laughs) It was at this moment he knew he fucked up. 
Yep. Well, anybody that thinks that they can go through the Wasatch Mountains all willy-fucking-illy and drop into the Wasatch Desert, known as the Salt Flats, also willy-fucking-illy in the wintertime, y'all don't know what you're playing with. You are a dipshit. You have made so many mistakes. All of them. All the mistakes that can be made, you just did that. All in one decision. In a wristy, risky, wristy. Wristy. It's very wristy. <laughs> he likes it in the wrist. In a risky, irrevocable decision, the Donner Party opted for this unproven, untested route, even though not a single soul had ever traveled it before with wagons, not even Hastings himself. Mm-hmm. <sighs> but why though? Well, James Kleiman, an accomplished mountain man, was the only other experienced member of the party who strongly advised against this. Nonetheless, all 20 wagons decided to give it a chance and gamble on the shortcut. I'll bet you that that was more like six dudes decided and everybody else followed. It would prove to be the worst and deadliest decision they ever made. Much of the supposed trail didn't even exist. This is what I'm telling you about the Wasatch Mountains, fuckers. The party was forced to cut down through trees in order to make some way for the journey. During the five-day crossing of the salt that Jesus fuck, I'm sorry. I'm going to start laughing and I know that it's not a, like, it's inappropriate, but y'all fucked up. And here's why. So, (laughs) during, okay, so they had to cut down trees to make way for some of the journey. During the five-day crossing of the salt desert, the party nearly died of thirst. Hey, did you know that gigantic body of water isn't safe for consumption? They probably spotted that motherfucker, which is the Great Salt Lake. And they're like, thank Jesus. The Salt Lake is saltier than the fucking ocean. By like Mm -hmm. how, how did the lakes, isn't it like 16 times more salty than the fucking ocean? I think so, but it's a lot more. So you want to drink it a lot less than you want to drink fucking ocean water. (laughs) Just saying. Well, here's what else happened. The supposed cutoff wasn't merely ineffective but detrimental and added nearly a month to the Donner Party's expedition. While most of the party did reach the Sierra Nevada Nevada Mountains by early November, which is entirely too fucking late, a blizzard covered them in snow and mountain passes that were accessible just a day early, now completely obstructed. As a result, the Donner Party was forced to turn back. They set up camp at Truckee Lake, which has now been renamed Donner Lake, and They hoped that their little makeshift cabins and flimsy little tents would suffice for the whole fucking winter. Again, Scotty, don't. (laughs) No. (laughs) They weren't ready. (laughs) No, 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 no. Okay. Winters in Utah are fucking dirty. Okay. Like our winter right now is pretty goddamn cold. Like when you wake up in the morning and it's 10 below. And that's really not that cold yet. No, it was so nice in Salt Lake, though. Oh, it it's always warmer in the 40 city. 40 degrees. I, I was know. like, heat wave, motherfucker. It's about <laughs> ready to bust out my flip-flops, but it's fucking oh snowy. Oh, my God. So they're thinking that they can make it all the way through winter, right? False. 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 <laughs> By this point, a lot of their food and supplies, as long as well as their livestock, had been lost on the trail. A few of the first members of the Donner Party starved to death soon thereafter. Most of the Donner Party consisted of children and adolescents. More than half of the 81 people trapped at Lake Truckee were underage, and six of them were infants. Most of the survivors were compromised of children as well, including one-year-old Isabella Breen. 
who then died when she was 90. Wow. She was uh, immortal. Yeah. A, she made it to 90 in a hell of a time, and she survived the Donner Party. Yeah. After over a month at Truckee Lake, 15 of the fittest members decided to risk everything in a last-ditch effort to get some help. On December 16th, 1846, they fitted their feet with makeshift snowshoes and walked out of the mountains. They walked the frozen tundra-esque environment for, for days to no avail. The men were starving, exhausted, and near utter collapse. Everything seemed lost. The time had come to face facts and confront their last remaining choices. Sacrifice someone and eat their flesh or freeze and starve to death. I don't know how I would make that out, that choice. But when you're that hungry, you're like, oh, I don't fucking like you. You can go down and eat your ass cheek. Uh, see, and I'm just, I okay, remember that movie Alive where the fucking football team crashed in the Andes Mountains and mm-hmm. they ended up eating the flesh of the dead? Mm-hmm. That's more along like, hey man, if they're already dead and the flesh is there and it's not rotting and I can consume it, I can fucking live, I'm going to. Yeah. But I don't know about killing another human being to feed myself. No. I don't think that's, that's, that's where my moral compass ticks back north. (laughs) Unless there's a major asshole. I mean, Uh, just kidding. I still couldn't do it. I don't know. I, I just really don't think I could kill somebody. I now, just don't want to make that choice. So let's not make it. Let, let's, yeah. let's put it where we don't have to. I also feel like as big as I am, I ain't starving no time soon. Oh, me either. I'm good. As long as I have water, I think I'm pretty well set. I think I got a good four years or so. I got I got some, so I got some, <laughs> some reserves. Well, the time, you know, the time has come. Either we starve to death or we eat. A people. Now, while the bastion of desperate pioneers discussed drawing straws or having two of them fight to the death, several members happened to die naturally. Did you did you say like we're going to draw straws and the shortest straw dies? Or you two motherfuckers that have been fighting over Martha May, you guys can fight to the death and the winner And we'll eat your ass. The winner gets Martha May and we, then we eat the loser. And Martha May gets you. So you win all around. Yes. You fucking top-notch first prize. You're insider. <laughs> Not the way you wanted to be, but you are. Well, this made everything much easier, relatively speaking. The surviving members of the Donart party, offshoot, were now able to cook and eat the deceased without adding to the uh, hefty sense of guilt to their already exhausting endeavor. Well, also known as a shit idea. Yes. Well, re-energized and firmly removed from physical collapse, several seven of the 15 members arrived at a ranch in California after a grueling month of walking. Once they arrived, they informed the locals, sought help, and orchestrated the rescue efforts that would help save anybody still alive at Truckee Lake. The first of the four rescue relief efforts began at this time. This incredible hike across the frozen wilderness was later dubbed the Forlorn Hike by historians. Well, it's important to note that, as far as evidence and provable accounts go, there were only two people who were murdered for food. Murdered. They didn't die naturally. They were only. murdered. Only. Only two. Only mm-hmm. two. Uh, all other incidents saw people cannibalize the bodies of those who had already died. In correspondence, journal, and later interviews, they freely admitted that when everything else was gone, they turned to cannibalism, said Wallace. They, <clears throat> they were suffering hyperthermia and starvation. They were delirious. But they knew that out in the snowbanks was this great store of protein, people who had already died. They had carefully placed them in the snowbanks, and that's what it came to. Of course, for the Native Americans who were killed for their flesh, 
It was just their luck that Salvador and Louis had joined the Donner Party shortly before the blizzards trapped them and forced, the, uh, forced their retreat to Truckee Lake. They were the only two people who flatly refused to eat human flesh. Um, hey, the natives have a thing for that. Um, it's called a Wendigo. Those are bad. Don't That's why that. they don't consume human people. Mm-hmm. So they have these two people that flatly refused to eat the human flesh. It disturbed them so heavily that they eventually ran away. Terrified they'd be sacrificed um, to the store of protein, what was depleted. And, well, to their credit, motherfuckers were right. The two men were found a few days after their escape, lying in the snow and suffering from exhaustion. Well, they hadn't eaten. The Donner Party member, William Foster, shot them both. Flip your page. In the head, and uh, afterward they were chopped up, cooked, cooked and consumed by the others. Boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew. No? Boys don't run without they shoes. <laughs> With a knick-knack, paddywhack. Give it a bone. <laughs> Two dead boys came rolling home. Well, beside a few terrifying accounts, which were never substantiated in court and never led to any criminal charges, this was the only incident where people were murdered for the food during the dreadful month-long ordeal. The other, and the other incidents, speculative as they may be, are certainly worth exploring, if for only the ghastly plausibility. The other incidents were parental sacrifice and potential uh. child murder. Now, the rescue process took more than two months, bringing the Donner Party's total of being trapped in the mountains to five months. The first relief parties arrived in February 1846, by which at this point many survivors were too weak to travel. Many died while attempting to descend the mountains. In total, four relief teams over the two months were required to bring all surviving members down. The very last member to be saved was a German immigrant named Louis Kessenberg. Found in April 1847, he reportedly discovered half-crazy and surrounded by half-eaten bodies of his peers. Kessenberg was made out to be the master villain of this entire tragedy. He didn't help his own cause. He and his wife, Philippine, came from Germany, and his son was a Lutheran clergyman who had decided to join his vanguard moving west. He was a sharp-tempered fellow and sometimes abusive to his young pregnant wife. He would also he would also been accused of plundering burial sites of the natives. When the rescue when the fourth rescue party arrived in April 1847, he was the only survivor. He was reportedly found with a cauldron of cooked flesh and discarded bones. There would also been rumors from some of the surviving children that he had taken one lad to bed to comfort him, and the next morning the child was dead, oh, God. hung up on the wall of the cabin like a slab of meat to later be eaten. Okay. Yeah. Later, the journalists of the day feasted on all of this. Sensationalized stories often filled with outright lies. I was a rye. You were rying. You were rying. Outright lies. Kessberg, <clears throat> Kessberg was called the human cannibal. It was said that he actually relished the taste of human flesh and that rescuers offered him alternative protein and he refused it saying, oh no, I like this better. Oh God. Well, many of those stories are pretty suspect. So through all of it, I don't think Kessberg is someone to to champion. I don't believe that he like he got a fairly raw deal. No, we cooked up. No, we cooked up. There are plenty of other substantiated and equally harrowing incidents during the release um, 
the rescue relief efforts, namely the story of Margaret Reed and the heartbreaking decision she had to make concerning her children. Um, a journalist, Ethan Rarick's piece called Desperate Passage, The Donner Party's Perilous Journey West, the writer used the diaries and the archaeological evidence to garner the invaluable insight to the tragedy with the Reed account convincing him this was the most uh, promising project that was you know like worth his time and effort one thing that led me to write the book in the moment was when Margaret Reed is walking walking out with her four children with the first rescue party it becomes clear that Patty and Tommy ages eight and three will not be able to keep going they're gonna have to be sent back the idea that another rescue party would get there before they would starve to death is pretty unlikely which means they're going to die she has to determine is she gonna send them back like take two of her children and send them back and keep trying to go like forward or is she gonna go back with them uh hello well, it's like <clears throat> it's like Sophie's choice, and she is finally convinced that she should go ahead with her two older children. As they say goodbye, Patty looks at her mother and says, Well, Ma, if you never see me again, just do the best you can. What the fuck? Yeah, dude. Um, she was eight when she said that to just her mother. Just do the best you can. Just do the best you can. Well, for an event so well-known for its cannibalism, it's remarkable how little is known about it for sure. However, it's not surprising that survivors would either remain tight-lipped or tell outright lies about it later, and evidence, as it were, doesn't fare well amid 12 feet of snow. Mm -mm. Either way, first-hand accounts of survivors are largely a mess of contradictions and retractions. The first-hand accounts of rescuers and witnesses, however long... Oh, excuse me. However, along with informed, researched opinions of journalists and historians after the fact, confidently state that as many as 21 people were eaten. God damn. 21. For Wallace, the ghoulish aspect of cannibalism was greatly overshadowed by the bravery and the resilience inherent in the accounts of the Donner Party survival. Eating human flesh was a total last resort. People say, oh, those cannibals, how could they do that? I turn around and say, what would you do if you're a mother watching your children starve and freeze to death? I'm looking at you because you're a mother. I couldn't do it. Well, you've already eaten the horses and the ox. You've boiled their hides into a horrible gelatinous concoction. You've eaten field mice and finally cut the throats of your beloved family dogs and eaten them, paws and all. But you know, there's a line. Wow. There's protein that will keep you alive in those snowbanks. Uh, do you know what? If my kids were starving, that's what would happen. It didn't really scar the children because they were told to eat it and they knew that they... They knew it kept them alive. Some yeah. of them never spoke of it again. Some of them denied it, but not that many. Fuck. So there you go. I couldn't. I don't. No. Yeah, to feed my kids, yes. That's one thing. I don't know if I could do it myself. Uh, I know that know. sounds fucked up, but here, kids, eat this. You'll stay alive. But I don't want to eat it. I'll puke. I'd probably I, throw I up. I wonder it. how many of them, like, threw up at first or if they... They were just so hungry, it didn't matter. I don't know. Well, I, I know that, um, I know that we're, I know that human meat supposedly tastes like pork. So, and the reason that I know this is I have a gentleman that I work with. His name is Brian. And he and I always end up having the weirdest conversations ever. And he asked me if I knew, like we had gotten onto the subject of cannibal and in the process of 
conversation, he said, did you know we taste like pork? And I was like, well, how do you know that? He's like, well, don't you, don't you know what long pork is? Long pig? Well, back in the days of Caribbean pirates and whatnots and travel by ship in the, um, like in Papua New Guinea and all of those islands right there, um, pork is not native to those, those areas. So, um, getting pork to those places made a lot of money. People would buy it if it made it there without completely being, you know, rotten and worthless. Well, so these pirates and all of these, you know, what do they call them? Not necessarily pirates, but they're like seafaring men decided that when a body is chopped up, once you take the arms at the elbow and the legs at the knee and take the head off of a human body, it suspiciously looks like pork like the body of a pig. So what they would do is they would go around and they would collect men to work on their boats. And then they would kill these men, skin them, chop them, and they would sell them as long pig to Ah. the natives and other people living down there. And they did this for quite some time. So because I wanted to fact check Brian, I looked it up and sure as fuck, he's telling me the truth. There is a history of cannibalism that happens down there, not just by the native tribes but by the people that were trying to colonize down there because they thought they were eating pigs now the only one thing that is unsafe for you to eat of the human body is the brain and here is why there are prions in the brain it is a protein that causes you a um a disease hold please it's like oh here it is crestfield jacob disease so what happens is the infectious protein is it's a prion that is found in human brain tissue. So in New Guinea, when a per, like when a per person had died, they would actually cannibalize the entire body. But the Kuru brain disease is something that it changes um, your like your nervous system. And it's basically it's like an encephaly. It's basically like mad cow disease. Mm-hmm. So like people that die with this disease, they laugh uncontrollably. They have no coordination. Their body twitches involuntarily. They lose all their mobility, and they eventually like convulse and fucking die. Like there's more information if you're curious about kudu like or Crestfeld Jacob disease. But so the one part of the human body that is not safe to consume is the brain. Everything else, according Game to on. Google, is just like pork. We taste just like pickin', pickins, not chickens. Pigs, not chickens. Pickins. Pickins. It's a, it's a mixture. <laughs> I like to make a mixture. Um, which reminds me of something I saw on one of our listeners' personal pages on Facebook, where they were talking about this, uh, it's called Scrapple. Anyway, Scrapple, okay? So I was like, what the fuck is Scrapple? Okay, Scrapple is known by the Pennsylvania Dutch... Named panhas or pan rabbit, it's traditionally a mush of pork scraps and trimming combined mm. with cornmeal and wheat flour or buckwheat flour that is and spices. It's then put into a congealed loaf and pan served. Yeah, I pan remember fry. seeing that too. Scrapple. Yeah. So I was like, what the fuck is it? Scrapple is basically fucking a type of spam. Yeah. Yeah. So perhaps maybe, ladies and gentlemen, don't fucking eat people, whether they're dead or alive, unless you absolutely have to. Mm -hmm. And uh, stay Stay out out of chalk lines. lines. Goodbye. Goodbye.